Lord, we have life in your name, not in ourselves. We have hope because of what you have accomplished for us in Christ, not because of what our hands have done. And we come to you as your people, humbled, recognizing our failure and our sin, but also rejoicing and celebrating in song and word the work that Christ has done. I pray that this work might be clear to us in the Scripture today that we consider. I ask that you would meet with us here by your Spirit, that you would draw our minds away from all that would hinder us from receiving what you have revealed to your church. I pray for those without Christ. Draw them to saving light today. Bring some to know Christ as Savior. And for those who do, may we rejoice in what you have done for us in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. In India, there are one million children living on the streets in the city of Mumbai alone. I've seen some of those children. A few blocks from a hotel where I stayed a couple of nights, some slept under a bridge so destitute they had no clothing. It's a heart-wrenching social ill that plagues many of the world's nations in ways that are really unimaginable to us. Children living on the streets, living on their own wits with no supervision, with no protection, with no loving provision. They're a danger to themselves often and sometimes can become, in fact, a danger to others who are around them. Just imagine how this boy thinks about life, what he knows. Think about what he has never learned, what no one has taught him, what no one has provided for him in training. Now let's imagine that one day he attempts to rob a wealthy married couple as they exit the train for a visit to his area, and they grab him and stop him They find a knife in his hand and he would have done them harm if he had had the ability to do so and probably would someday to someone else. He anticipates severe punishment. He's been here before. He anticipates a beating, but he gets something he didn't ever expect. He's astonished when this childless couple speaks kindly to him and befriends him. And through their stay in the city, they continue to make contact with him. And one day, to his utter amazement, they adopt him as their own child. After their stay ends, the new family boards a train with a two-day trip in front of them to this couple's luxurious home in the country. And they travel in a train. It's hot and dirty and crowded, as is often the case in India boy's mother and father, as they travel, they'll tell him stories about their magnificent home in a place that's more peaceful and more beautiful than he can begin to imagine. Well, we can certainly say this boy is blessed beyond description. But we would also say, wouldn't we, as he's traveling on this train to this unknown world, he has an awful lot to learn. There's a lot of things that are going to have to be figured out a lot of hurdles that even begin to present themselves right away. A boy who has all his life fed himself by finding scraps of food along the train tracks must learn to receive prepared food and to eat it like a human being with proper manners. He has never lived with a provider, 
So even on the train as he walks through the aisle, he thinks about stealing. He's thirsty and wants to take something from someone and doesn't understand that all he needs to do is ask his parents. He's never learned this. On the other hand, they explain to him that their love does not mean that their child can live however he wants. There's great wealth that is now at his disposal and they will provide and they will care for him in ways that he's just trying to figure out and understand but it does not mean that he can do whatever he wants to do. He's going to have to learn to do some things differently. He must never do some things again. And he will have new responsibilities that he must learn to fulfill. The outpouring of his parents' unearned, inexplicable love for him has really changed his very identity. Everything is different. And he will spend the rest of his life learning the implications of who he is as their child. It's not a stretch, is it, to realize that that's our life, brother and sister in Christ. We are declared righteous by faith in Jesus' death in our place to suffer the penalty of our sin. And we are justified by trusting in His resurrection. Trusting this message gives us a whole new identity. We become not God's enemies, Romans 5 and verse 10, but we become His children, adopted as His own. And we have a lot to learn. We have a lot to learn about our new identity. As we come back to the book of Romans today, it's really chapters 5 through 8 that are focused upon that very point. To help us learn who we are in Christ. This new identity. What it looks like. There are some things we must stop doing. There are some things we must start doing. But all of it is really based upon who we are. There's a new identity. A new person. And I have to learn to think that way. The adoption of this street boy from Mumbai by wealthy parents is a game changer. To be born in a state of sin and to be graciously redeemed by Jesus is an eternally greater change. How are we to perceive? How are we to respond to this new reality? What must we know? How must we learn to see ourselves in our new world? How should our redemption change our perspective? These chapters that are before us, chapters 5 through 8, are oriented to answer these questions. And we begin by just sticking our nose into the section here today in the first five verses of chapter 5 as Paul unfolds four realities that mark our new life as people justified by faith in the Gospel. Realities we've got to learn to apply to life. A new identity that we have in Christ. The first we find in verse 1 is as justified believers in the Gospel, we have peace with God. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Why does Paul say that? Why is that there in the book? That's clearly in some sense just a summation, a summary statement of chapters 1-4. through It's all there. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are subject to God's just judgment. 
There is no one saved from God's wrath by doing good works in obedience to God's law. No one. Paul has labored to establish this point that all are lost in sin by nature. And I would say to you, even at this outset of our time together here today, if you believe that you are on your way to heaven because you're a basically good person, I plead with you to understand that's not true. You're holding on to a fantasy. God will be pleased with me because of the works that I do, because of the goodness of my performance. That is a fantasy. Read Romans 1-4 through carefully, and you'll see that fantasy. There is no one who does good, not even one, Paul lays out. And as we come to discern what God's law is, we realize that includes us. And standing before a righteous God, well, we don't stand. We don't add up. We cannot achieve our salvation. We cannot earn it by our own works. But we can be justified. We can have a right standing before God by faith. By putting our trust and our confidence in what He has done. That's the summary statement here. Since we have been justified by faith. We have been justified. Even the way that is placed in the passive sense, it is a gift from God. And it is a settled fact for the redeemed. It's not something that we are progressively earning. And here again, you may be on the wrong page with this. I I just encourage you to think about it. If you think in terms of my good works will please God, that's off track. That's a fantasy. It's also a fantasy to think that justification is earned in pieces. That it's God who justifies, but I am developing justification over time. Justification is an act of God at one time in your life. You come to the place of putting your faith and trust that Jesus died to pay the penalty of my sin, that He rose from the dead in victory over death and sin, God justifies you. He says that one is righteous. This person stands in right relationship with me. Or to use a different phrase, a different word, that pictures the same thing, this one has become my adopted child. Not because we've earned our way into God's home, but because He, as a gift, settles it with us and we are justified in that moment of faith. He says here in verse 1, it is we that have been justified. That in itself is important. In chapters 1-4, through we've heard Paul kind of talking to his objectors, to those who oppose him. But we enter in now to a lot more of the we orientation of the book. Paul raises the voice, one commentator says, of the justified sinner to hymnic heights. We, he now sings out, are justified by faith. We who have been justified by faith have peace with God. Notice we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This peace, let's think about it for a moment. It's not psychological peace. It's not peace of mind or peace and quiet or some mystical euphoria of a peaceful feeling in the presence of God. 
Peace with God points to the end of hostilities. Notice chapter 5 and verse 10. We were enemies of God because of our sin. That hostility is gone. We're now at peace through our Lord Jesus Christ, those who have trusted Him as Savior. The very God that we offended, the very God we despise by our love for other gods, we are now at peace relationally with Him. The Old Testament prophets use the Hebrew word shalom and develop that as a theme, as God's gift to His people. And it was often put in terms of His gift in the end times. A life of spiritual freedom and wisdom was a life of peace. So that age has dawned now with the coming of Christ. We are at peace with God. The hostility is over. This new age has dawned. And in Christ there is now a final answer to how one can be justified and right with God. The animal sacrifices of the Old Testament, there had to be a conversation of peace to come. Because those sacrifices could never provide that peace. But Christ has. If you are separated from Christ, I would suggest to you that this is something that's missing. Peace is not something you've yet come to know and come to experience. God's gift to His people is this peace. God does not hold it out as a gift to just anyone who will steal it, but He holds it out as a gift to those who will come to Him in repentance and trust and receive it as a gift. This is the message of Christ's death and resurrection. It is a gift. It is a gift that is offered to us and embrace, but when we embrace it, and not until we embrace it, do we know what peace is? Do we have a sense that that hostility with God has ended? You know, for those of us who have passed into that peace maybe a long time ago, we can forget just how unique it is to go to bed at night with a clear conscience. Not with a sense that we are sinless, but with a sense that we are indeed forgiven. We may forget what that's like and the the uniqueness of it. To know that my sins are forgiven, to know that there is now no condemnation. We can be at peace all day long in the presence of God because of this forgiveness that He has provided. That is an exquisite gift. We should embrace it and thank God for it. Picture this little boy on the train going home with his new parents to a world he cannot understand. He tried to put a knife into them. I guess we could say in his defense it wasn't personal. But he he, he would have hurt them. Here's this kid that would have hurt them and taken their money from them, now sitting on this train next to them at peace. Relationship has been entirely altered and changed. And so is our relationship with the Lord. Our peace with God comes, we notice here in verse 1, through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is through the One who is delivered to pay the penalty of our trespasses and was raised for the sake of our justification. Keep that in mind. It is through Jesus Christ that we have peace with God. Because that phrase will be carried through, I think, the rest of the passage. But secondly... 
as justified believers, we have access to grace, verse 2. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. I'll take just a little bit of unpacking. But through Him, that is, through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, we have peace with God and also have, secondly, obtained access by faith into this grace. Let's work that backwards. First of all, we have a standing. We have been given through Christ a standing. Second, we stand on the ground of God's grace. And thirdly, it is by faith that we receive this relationship with God. Number four, working backwards, in relationship to God, we have obtained access. That is, by God's merciful and sovereign will, we now have access to His throne, access to His fatherhood. We are invited into fellowship with Him. So again, the boy. He did not earn his parents' favor. But now, every request, every failure, every problem, every opportunity he encounters in life is ruled over by his parents' grace toward him. Now let's note, and we must in these days, God's grace is not His softness that permits us to do wrong while He blushes and fails to respond. That's not what God's grace is. God's grace is His disposition to love us as His own all the time. To care for us, to love us, to treat us as we really ultimately don't deserve As He cares for us, God's grace, in fact, then disciplines us. God's grace corrects us. But in His grace toward us, He is always disposed to love and to nurture us. Remember what Jesus said, ask anything in My name and I will do it. It's not a magical phrase, but it is saying, synchronize your desires with Mine and I am a God of grace and will pour out all all of your desires as they are sanctified and right desires in time. Ask of me and I will give to you. This little boy wanting to steal somebody's lunch as he's walking through the train, his parents just say, you're hungry, ask us. Now grace might dictate that he waits. But they say, ask us. Everything this young man experiences is under grace. The relationship has been changed so that there's peace and now there's a standing in grace. Christian, let me say this in a right sense. Hear it. God is for you. He is for you. His grace flows to you. You are His child through Jesus Christ. And as He loves His Son eternally, He now loves us. He's a God of grace. He is for us. And when He is for us, nothing can be against us. doesn't take the trials of life away. We'll talk about that. But He's for us. Thirdly, we have hope in glory. The third entailment of justification or implication or result comes at the middle of verse 2. And we rejoice. I read that to be, and... Through Jesus Christ, as we have peace 
And as we have standing in grace, so through Jesus Christ, we also rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What does that mean? God's glory is His magnificence and His splendor. God's glory is the weightiness of His perfections. And there is, in this life or the next, nothing that is so stunning, so inviting, so, well, I guess, glorious as God's glory. There can't be anything described to help us really understand it as we describe it. But what does God's glory mean in this context? Hope. It is, notice it's hope in this glory. Hope in the glory of God. Hope looks forward to what has not been realized. When that word is used in Scripture, hope is looking ahead to what we've not yet received. God's glory is the weightiness of His perfections, and there's nothing there ultimately to hope for unless it would be to be in His glorious presence. But God is already glorious. The hope of the glory of God, I think then, is looking forward to God, to to our being glorified in the likeness of God. The glory of God will grant to us a glory, a transformation when we enter into His presence. We have here, I think, the idea of 1 John 3, 2. We shall be like Him. That is, we shall be glorified when? When we see Him as He is. So hope in the glory of God is hope that we will arrive in the presence of the glorious God and be glorified. We live with the hope of that glory to come. So there's a sense in which we're like the boy on the train. We're not to glory yet. We're not to the home yet. We're anticipating what is going to be realized. We're hearing stories of the mansion in which we will live versus the hopelessness of the days of survival on the streets. So our hope and final glorification in the presence of the all-glorious God radically distinguishes our view of this world and how we now live in it. Our whole focus is on what is to come. It doesn't mean we're not focused on the life that's here and the responsibilities that are here, indeed the trials that are here. He's still on the train, it's still stinky, it's still crowded, and he's not there yet. But there's a hope and an anticipation of what is to come. I don't know if you've ever been on a subway in New York City, but you see people who have that don't have that hope on their destination. They're just sitting there because they have nothing else to do. They're going nowhere. They're just riding the subway to have a place to sleep, to have a place to hang out. It's utterly hopeless. They don't know where they're going. We don't ride this world's train that way. We know where we're headed. We know where we're going by God's gracious mercy to us. And it changes our attitude. It changes our whole perspective, our very identity. I'm passing through with treasures laid up in another world of infinitely passing glory to anything that I've ever seen in this world. It changes how we view money. It's not to grab onto it and hold onto it at all costs as if this is the only place that we will know wealth. We'll know a wealth beyond all wealth here. We're just passing through. Money is to be moved around for God. It changes how we look at disappointment. This isn't the end of the world. This is just this world. 
all disappointment in my future is going to be blown away. And it filters then. It, it changes how I look at disappointment, at heartache, at disease, at death. All of it's radically changed because of the hope that I will be glorified in the presence of the glorious God someday. Now, Christian, what I'm saying to you here, this isn't news. Uh, at least not novel news today. It's news from the Lord that He's revealed. We know this. But listen, we have to work at this. We've got we've to roll up our sleeves and we've got to go to work believing what God has said, realizing that this is our identity, realizing this, this is how we should perceive life. We need to work our entire lives to grow strong in the hope that fixes our gaze on the assurance that God's promises will be realized. So I need to think in terms of Jesus is preparing a place for me, John 14. There's a preparation that is going on there. There's a day where I have a destiny with that place. And to actively think about that as we filter the trials of life our fallen bodies our fleshly passions this veil of tears will one day be consumed by the glorious presence of the lord forever and so we boast in god and we await with patience our final destiny in the fourth century augustine said this to his congregation this way then oh think of it christian then we won't sin bring that day not only by deed but not even by desire when we see that face which beats and surpasses all desires because it is so lovely my brothers and sisters so beautiful that once you have seen it nothing else can give you pleasure it will give insatiable satisfaction of which we will never tire. We shall always be hungry and always have our fill. That's hope in the glory of God. His glory becoming then our glorification as we live forever in His presence. We have that in our justification. That's our possession. That's our new identity. Fourthly, we have joy in suffering. Notice verse 3, not only that. How do we read that? Again, through our Lord Jesus Christ, we not only have peace with God, we not only have grace in, stand, in this standing, we have not only hope in glory, but we also have joy in suffering through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, through faith in Him, through our salvation in Him. We rejoice in our sufferings. I think this is a vital addition to Paul's list here. The glorious hue of those first three points, the implications of our justification couched in these three ways might leave us with the idea that Paul is simply a blind optimist. Life is hard. It is filled with disappointment. We suffer. How are we to take Paul seriously here? That we rejoice in our sufferings. He makes very certain that we do take Him seriously in these three verses. Let's consider them. Rejoice means to boast, to take pride in, to glory in. And we just wonder, Paul, have you lost your mind? 
Suffering is hateful. Suffering is hard. Rejoice. Boast in our sufferings. We need to stop here, and we'll come back to it through this section again, but what does Paul mean by sufferings? We rejoice in our sufferings. Some people seek to help Paul out here, I think, a little bit, by suggesting that he's only speaking about persecution. We rejoice only insofar as we suffer reproach, the reproach of Christ, from those who directly attack the faith. When we suffer in that way, we can rejoice. But that's all that Paul's talking about. The reason I don't believe that is the New Testament just does not support it. This distinction that persecution suffering is the suffering we rejoice in and all other kinds of suffering are just, well, tough luck, hard world. The Bible just doesn't ever describe it that way. I think the key to it is to understand your identity. This helps it all. We are new creatures in the new age of the Spirit and citizens of Christ's kingdom. This means that every pain that we suffer in this life, we suffer as citizens of the kingdom that is to come and the citizens of the new earth. God did not create us to sin. He did not create us to grow tired, to get sick, to suffer disease, or to suffer the wrongs that others commit against us. That's not God's ultimate design in the end. So when we suffer, we experience the rule of Satan, whose agenda is to use sufferings to destroy our faith in God and in His promises. But when we trust Christ as Savior, we enter into His victory over death and sin and sorrow. So Satan designs to destroy our faith, to make us bitter, to make us doubt God's love, to make us despair, to make us blame others as if they're little gods. But Christ's victory over sin, His victory over death is so complete that He actually uses the very trials that Satan designs to destroy our faith to build our faith. He's the sovereign ruler over all. And He uses trials that way. Now, some get really close to the good of this teaching, but then they go a bad direction with it. We are citizens of another kingdom. Christ has delivered us from suffering and death ultimately and they say that's what Jesus intends for your life right now. If you will trust Him, and it always comes in there somewhere, if you will give me money, God will give you good. He will take away all suffering. You will be prosperous in every way. It gets close because Christ has won that victory. But notice what he says here. That victory is not finalized now. It's coming, but it's not yet. And so, he says here, we rejoice in our sufferings. Paul does not say we're not going to suffer anymore. And he's not talking just about persecution. just can't be borne out in the text. He's saying you will suffer. And when you suffer, rejoice. Christ has won the victory. It's not escape suffering suffering because Jesus purchased health and wealth for us now in this life. 
but it's you will suffer, and when you do, as God's child, all these things remain. You're at peace with God, you have access to grace, you have hope of glory, and here's how you handle suffering. You rejoice in it. And that's a game changer. That's a whole different perspective that is only going to work one way, and that's as we see our identity in Christ. That's it. No other guru, no other psychologist, no other religion is going to get us here. Religions of the world will keep us from giving in to suffering. They'll help us kind of endure it on some level. But there's no sense that God is actually using suffering for our good. But our identity in Christ teaches us this. Notice the second part of verse 3. Why is it that we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance? Not suffering just to rejoice for no reason, but it, it produces endurance. This is what we must know. Endurance is that quality that bears up under the strain of troubles and trials with active faith and joyful resolve. Endurance. I bear up under the weight, and I do so with joy. My faith in God permits me to hang in there and to persevere under the trials that we face. You can imagine, or maybe you've even got a scene from some war movie somewhere, but this this, uh, concept makes sense to us when we think of soldiers in in a war. You have those soldiers who have been out on the battlefields for months, And they've got accustomed to the sounds. They've got accustomed to the hardships. And they've gotten, they've developed shoulders, so to speak, to handle this situation. And then some new recruits come in. And you put the two together and you can tell who's who. Here's these kind of battle-worn warriors that are there. And there's gunfire that that breaks out and they don't even flinch. Where the new recruits not only flinch, they look for cover. They're unsure of themselves. They're jumpy. Their eyes are wide open. And they're, they're very nervous and scared. Endurance pictures that first group. The group that's been in the field for a while. They've developed the capacities to adjust to the trials and the heartaches of battle. They're enduring This is what God gives to His soldiers as we deal with the trials of life. Let's say it. I, I don't know about you, but I hate suffering. I do not look forward to it. I don't like anything about troubles. I want life to go smoothly. You too, right? But as somebody put it, picnic weather does not test the metal of a ship. And easy sailing in life does little to develop faith. But as we face the stiff winds and the boisterous waves of serious trials and suffering, we learn to trust God. And thus we develop stronger shoulders of endurance. And does it seem to you, those of you who are a bit more mature in the faith, mature in age, doesn't it seem like God just keeps piling on heavier loads? He's building faith. He's saying, you can handle this with my help. You can handle this by my grace. And I'm going to put more on you because to show you can handle this too. And as we trust God, little by little through the days, 
He continues to place trials upon us that open up our weaknesses, that show us where we don't trust Him, but that give us a fresh experience that God comes to our aid. That He is trustworthy and true. So endurance is that capacity to hold up under what should crush our faith, what Satan wants to send us running under, but we bear up under it trusting in God. And so when we see what he's doing, we rejoice, knowing that endurance is the outcome of suffering these trials in faith. As we face the stiff winds and the boisterous waves of serious trials and suffering, we learn that God is trustworthy. Trials strengthen faith, knowing this then is the cause of rejoicing. So Christian, when you suffer, maybe you're in the middle of it right now, maybe something's coming down the road, don't fear, go to work. It's time to go to work. When we suffer, it's time to see this reality, to see this ordeal in the arena of God's victory over sin and corruption. And to focus on the promises of God, choosing this mindset that as I face trials, I will rejoice. That's my new identity. That's my new calling. That takes work. It's not natural. But by God's grace, it builds faith. Verse 4 Endurance then, in turn, produces character. Character is, maybe we could translate, proven character. That is, character that is revealed under pressure. Hope, as we endure the onslaughts of Satan, we grow confident that we are God's children and on our way to our eternal home. It produces character, and character produces hope. This hope, this confidence this trust in God through the trials of life. We don't ever mock Satan. Don't go there. We leave that with God, but we can say in a gracious way, bring it on. Because our God is strong enough to handle any trial that He takes us through. We don't say that in a way of bragging and boasting and challenging Satan, but we can say to this life, whatever God brings, faith can stand. Verse 5, and hope then does not put to shame, doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Hope doesn't put to shame. That is, it never will disappoint you. It will never prove empty. Our hope in God and eternity with Him will be realized. And this is the case not because of the strength of our faith. This is the case not because we earn it by good deeds. Why is this the case? Because God's love, God's unmerited love for us has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So the Old Testament prophets pointed to the day when the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon His people. We live in that day. And God, through the Spirit, pours out His love and His mercy into our lives. I think it's probably connecting to Pentecost in Acts 2, signaling the coming of the age of the Spirit. But this ministry of the Holy Spirit to believers is real. It convinces us of the love of God, though we are sinners. We come ever more to recognize the depths of our sin. 
Maturity never leads you to say, well, I wasn't really that bad. Maturity in Christ leads you to ever realize more and more the depths of your sin with more and more of a witness of the Spirit of God that God loves me and has forgiven me. That witness is within. God's love poured out into our hearts. And the Greek here again is instructive to us. It speaks of a permanent condition. This ministry of the Spirit to the believer is a gift from God. It's a gift to all believers, and it is a permanent condition. The result is something of a subjective realization that God has filled my heart with His love towards me. I get that sense. I have that confidence. I think of the love of God. I'm not dead inside and go, I don't know what that's all about. I hear of the love of God. I don't have a sense of deep conviction that I I don't think He loves me. Because I don't think I love Him. For the true believer, there is a sense that God loves me that is real and beautiful. And we grip it and we grasp it. I sense it. I know it. I'm coming to realize more and more that God loves me despite what circumstances may seem to indicate to the contrary. So there are two types of people as we respond to these truths. And we just kind of come up the mountain and work through a lot of hard things in Romans with Paul's writings through chapter 4. We sort of come out at the top of the mountain into the sunlight and we see now here is what it means for those that are justified. As we take this in and drink it in, there's two people here today. You're one of two groups. There are those here who are an orphan soul. You may not like to think of yourself in those terms. You might not like to think of yourself as unrelated to God as your Father. There's a sense in which He is the Father of all people, but there's a sense in which He must adopt you into His home and receive you. as. You might not like to think of yourself as an orphan soul. You think of yourself as self-sufficient. You take pride in your good works. You're a good person. Maybe you're just apathetic and don't really care. I would call you in light of this book to realize Romans chapter 10 and 23 that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. We do not realize what He created us to be. We do not fulfill the law that He gives us to keep. We fall short of His glory. And to recognize then the beauty of this thesis in 3 and verse 28, chapter 3, 28, that we are justified by faith apart from works of the law. It's not by you pleasing God with your works, but it is by you coming to realize what Jesus has done for you to pay the cost, the penalty, the just reward of your sin and to give you life in His resurrection power. Trust that gospel. This is an opportunity today for you to put your trust and your confidence in it. And I call you to do that. It's a gift. Receive it today. But you must come humbled and repentant and trusting. For those that have been justified through Jesus' death in our place and His resurrection, let's think of it because we've got to know it. We're at peace with God. 
We have a standing, secondly, that gives us access to God's gracious care and fellowship. We have the confident prospect that we will one day enter God's glorious presence and be transformed into the glorious condition that God created us to occupy. And we will be a victorious faith, have a victorious faith-building relationship to all suffering. That takes work. It takes faith to believe. It takes faith to apply these truths. But the start of it all is the revelation of these glories. God puts his arm around us, so to speak, and he says, this is the truth about you in Christ. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, these realities have come to bear in your life. Know this. Understand this. The boy on the train is trying to wrap his mind around the realities that will shape his new life. He doesn't understand what it is to go to his parents and ask for provision. He doesn't understand what this home will look like. He doesn't understand what it means to not live by stealing and scraping. What it means to live indoors and to know that the next night you can go back to the same place. He doesn't know what that means. But his parents explain it to him, and he's got to put it into play. He's got to put it into practice. This is our beautiful gift from God, these four points. But we need to apply them as his people to learn to see ourselves this way. So we, like rescued spiritual street children, now have the love of God residing in our hearts. We have a new life, a new identity which we put into practice as we perceive who we are in this fallen world and where we're going by God's grace. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, what joys are ours, what glories are ours in Christ. In prayer now we lift up our thoughts and we seek you and we ask that you would receive our thanksgiving. Help us as we meditate upon these truths, as we sing to announce them to one another and in your presence, the glory in your great name. We are awed by what you have done. We recognize that our lives do not exemplify these truths as they should. I pray that we would first come to know Christ as Savior, that all would be moved to see that call that need it. For those that have trusted you, I pray that we would put by faith into practice these realities. Here and now, we rejoice in them through our Savior.